0: Good afternoon ladies and gentlemen and welcome to the 16th installment of Painting the Corners with Anton Schindler brought to you by 90.5 KCSU. In last week's episode we talked all about the somewhat of an anomaly and the underdog story that was the 2005 Chicago White Sox. We talked about how there were a lot of components working really well for this team but they just needed that one thing or a few tweaks here and there to push them to a world series championship. And today I wanted to stay on that sort of similar theme by talking about teams that, well, probably should have tweaked themselves a bit more before the new season came around. Today, we'll be talking about a handful of teams that never really saw huge aspirations to win a world series, but to just win more than, well, you know, 50 games in a season. Here are some of the worst teams and their worst seasons to ever play the game of professional baseball. Now, I got inspired to make this podcast off of an article that was recently posted to MLB.com that was talking about the worst quote-unquote professional baseball team to ever play called the Yonkers Hoot Owls. Now, the Hoot Owls were founded in 1995 and played in the Northeast League, which was an independent minor league, meaning that they were, in fact, a professional team but had no affiliation to any MLB teams. Independent ball is basically lower than, like, single A, double A, triple A kind of minor league baseball. Anyway, during the offseason, the little team was unable to find a professional quality stadium and were forced to play their home games at Fleming Field, a small ballpark with an all-dirt infield with two light posts that actually stood on on either side of the all-fence backstop in foul ground territory. So basically, they were on the field with everything else. Now, I don't know if a pass ball ever hit off of those light posts, but, I mean, you have to imagine just the nasty hops that it would take after hitting off of one of those. The stadium was built for high schoolers and college club teams, so it didn't have any dugouts, it didn't have locker rooms, no restrooms, no scoreboard, and all of the seats were concrete slab and they basically lined the stadium from home to first and home to third. But that was it. I mean, there were so little seats that the stadium could only really hold around 500 people officially if they were really crammed in, unless they brought out their own camp chairs and blankets and stuff like that. However, unfortunately for the Hoot Owls and their owners, uh, but I guess in a way fortunate for the limited capacity, around 5,000 fans showed up to cheer on their home team that entire season, which averaged out to about 200 fans a game. The team was managed by Paul Blair, who actually played 17 years of professional baseball, mostly with the Baltimore Orioles and the Yankees, where he acquired four World Series rings, eight Gold gloves, and two all-star appearances. But even the fairly successful Blair couldn't turn this team around. They managed to go 14-54 in the 1995 season, putting them 37 games out of first place. The team was mostly locals and some college athletes as well. But there was one player, Pete Buffon, who actually had some professional league experience before coming to the team as he was drafted to the Padres out of college. He was the only player that did well on the team, batting 329 that season, but he ended up leaving the team in July because he was just so disgusted by the team and ended up finishing the season with the Sullivan Mountain Lions, which was another slightly better Northeast league team. A bunch of amateur talent against a bunch of more experienced players led to quite a lot of losses as you can imagine. The funniest part about all of this, however, was that the Hoot Owls played well leading up to the final innings of the game. You see, it was just their bullpens that happened to be some of the worst in baseball and would consistently give up multiple runs in the final few innings of the games. The Hoot Owls ended up disbanding in 1995 with no return in sight. But what about some other professional teams that weren't forced to fold after one season? I mean, what about some teams that were really good before and then really bad, but then pretty good after that horrible season? For this part, I'll start out by talking about some teams that played in the early 1900s and then transition into some more modern teams that you might remember from really not that long ago. First off, we'll talk about the 1935 Boston Braves. Now. This is a pretty interesting story because the team actually had one player that we've talked about in a few of these podcasts, sitting in the outfield for, well, only about 28 games. That's right, the 1935 Braves had Babe Ruth, although he was in his final season. And he didn't really provide much help to the Braves. You see, towards the end of his career, Babe Ruth was really struggling to play baseball well, both due to his physical and really mental health as well. Ruth had a career-worst 181 batting average with just six home runs, the least he had hit since 1917, and it seemed that the rest of the team didn't do much better. But the thing is, the 1935 Braves weren't that bad of a team. They finished above 500 in 1934 and 1937, but just happened to find a skid in the in-between years. The only bright spot came from Wally Berger, who led the National League in home runs with 34. And RBIs with 130 as well as hitting 295 but the problem was Berger had almost half of all the home runs hit by the team that entire season they ended up finishing 38 and 115 with a 248 winning percentage now as bad as that may sound it's not even the worst winning percentage in the history of the major leagues surprisingly enough No, that would go to the 1916 Philadelphia Athletics, who were only two years off of World Series appearance. The Athletics did something that had never been done before, losing at least two of every three games that they played against the other teams in the league. They allowed around 5.04 runs per game, but only scored 2.90 runs a game, making their chances to win, I mean, next to impossible from june 27th to august 8th the a's went 2 and 41 (laughs) just saying that seems unreal they went on a 12 game losing streak won a game had a 20 game losing streak won another game and then went on a nine game losing streak before finally winning another game They ended up 54 and a half games back in the league, a full 40 games behind the next worst team, the Cincinnati Reds. Amos Strunk, the Athletics outfielder, had the best season out of the team, hitting a more than acceptable 316 with 172 hits and 49 RBIs. Bullet Joe Bush had a 257 ERA with a career-high 8 shutouts, even though he went 15 and 24 that season. You see, the problem with the athletics was that the offense really just couldn't score a lot of runs, and they were helpless when trying to answer all of the runs that the pitchers were continually giving up. I mean, three out of the four starting pitchers in this lineup gave up more than 100 runs in the season, with the most coming from a man named Elmer Myers, who gave up 169 runs in just 44 games. That's gotta hurt. Now, I feel like I should also mention here that there were actually quite a few teams in the pre-modern quote-unquote era of baseball that had losing percentages that were even worse than the teams that I mentioned above. Like the 1899 Cleveland Spiders, for example, who gave up 1,251 runs, finishing 20 and 134 with a .130 winning percentage. They finished 84 games out of first place. Now, as a matter of fact, according to MLB.com, 32 of the 35 worst seasons in MLB history happened before 1900s, and 23 of these teams played 65 or fewer games in the season. So, it's difficult to compare these pre-1900s era to modern era baseball teams because of a lot of different aspects, like how the teams were structured and built and which teams were actually in leagues officially or which ones just got added for a season and then disbanded again and so on and so forth. But just so you know, there are a lot of teams in this pre-world series era that were really, really bad. Anyway, on to some more modern teams, and I feel like I can't start this in any other way then to talk about the 2018 Baltimore Orioles in Manny Machado's last season with the Orioles Baltimore found themselves 13 games below 500 just 25 games into the season by the all-star break they were 41 games below 500 an MLB record by the way and finished the season off going 47 and 115 with a 290 win percentage. The Orioles were just coming off of a wildcard appearance in 2016 and actually had a good amount of those players returning once again from that team. I mean, names like Manny Machado and Chris Davis as well as Jonathan Scope and Kevin Gosman as well. But the problem was, only one of the players that I just listed above had a truly outstanding season. Manny Machado had a 315 batting average with 24 home runs, a total only match by Trey Mancini, and 65 RBIs, which was more than anyone else on the team. Chris Davis, the former slugger, batted 168 with 192 strikeouts and only 16 home runs on the season. Now, it's actually kind of funny that I bring this up because this was the season that started that historic 0-for-54 hitless streak that Chris Davis had, that I actually talked about all the way back in episode one of this podcast. Kind of seems like just yesterday, huh? Anyway, onto the 2003 Detroit Tigers. Now, I think it's very safe to say that quite a lot of good came out of this season. I mean, yes, the Detroit Tigers might have lost at least 20 more games than any of the other 29 teams that season, but it meant that they would get a first-round draft pick, that they would end up using on future Hall of Famer Justin Verlander. Now the Tigers may not have known the positive effect this pick would have coming out of a season like that but I mean maybe it was for the best. The Detroit Tigers have the lowest at least since 2000 winning record than any other team in the major leagues. They ended the season going a heart-clenching 43 and 119 finishing just 47 games out of first place, with a two sixty five win percentage. Now, to put this a bit into perspective, the second highest rated player on the team was a pitcher named Nate Cornejo, who went 6-for-17 with just 46 strikeouts in 194.2 innings. The only reason that he was so highly ranked in the team was because of his fairly modest ERA, which unfortunately for the Tigers, was a full point and a bit more than any of the other starting pitchers that found their way to the mound that season. The pitching staff for this team gave up 928 runs that season, which was almost twice as many runs as the offense was able to conjure up. Dimitri Young, the DH for the Tigers that year, was the only one who had a halfway decent season, hitting 297 with a career best 29 home runs. But even his bat at the bottom of the lineup, mind you, did little to liven up the squad. The really sad part about this Tigers team is that this was really rock bottom for them, as they fell from 79 wins in 2000 to 66 wins in 2001 and 55 wins in 2002 before winning just 43 games in 2003. Talk about a team that seriously needed a shake-up in the form of Justin Verlander. So there we go. That's just a few professional baseball teams that didn't find great success in at least one of the seasons that they played. And I feel like this is a sort of humbling podcast because if you think that your team is absolutely terrible (laughs) or is going to be terrible this year you know sometime in the future I mean all you got to do is just think of these teams that I just mentioned and say okay well at least they're not like them so next week's episode we'll be taking another ride on the flip side and talk about some of the best seasons of any team in professional baseball it's not completely common to see a team win over a hundred games in a season But what about 116 games? And what about those unfortunate teams that won 110 or more games, but didn't end up winning the World Series? Thank you for listening.